You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Today, uh, in light of Thanksgiving coming up, uh, each year around Thanksgiving, uh, particularly on Twitter, there's this uh, kind of tweet that begins to go viral that's done it for a number of years. And it goes something like this, ruin Thanksgiving in four words. Um, and so you're, you imagine yourself around the Thanksgiving uh, table. And uh, I think the first time I saw this was like 2000, uh, like 16, maybe maybe 2018. And, and so, of course, you know, uh, Tuesday is Election Day. Um, and I hope you all uh, exercise uh, your, uh, your citizenship and vote um, and and vote uh, uh, in our, our state and our local elections. But usually the answer to this question, right, is let's talk about politics, right? Like that'll ruin Thanksgiving at around some tables. Uh, but, uh, but, but I thought of some other ones. I don't know if, if any naturally come to your mind. Um, the turkey is dry, right? Like that, that might very well uh, ruin Thanksgiving, at least uh, for uh, the one who cooked the turkey, whether that be mom uh, or dad. Uh, I need a plunger, right? Like that uh, might be off-putting. Uh, some of you are about to go home and your parents are going to ask this question. How are your grades, right? Um, uh, you have a boyfriend yet or a girlfriend yet? Like some aunt is going to ask that question or grandma or mom, perhaps, are going to ask that question. Um, perhaps the, uh, the not very sensitive uncle, you've gained some weight, right? Like uh, these types of things uh, could all possibly ruin a Thanksgiving meal. There's all kinds of topics uh, in life that if you were to bring up, uh, perhaps at your, at your family table or with your friends may not make for the best conversation or they may make for an interesting conversation to observe, but not one to participate in. Um, and uh, and today we come to uh, kind of a, a topic that's like that for the Pharisees. Uh, and we're going to look at Jesus and two, uh, really three different conflicts with the Pharisees. And it revolves around fasting. And the, and the topic that would ruin their Thanksgiving would be the topic of the Sabbath and, uh, and how one is to keep the Sabbath and what violates the Sabbath. And particularly between Jesus and the Pharisees throughout his life and ministry, it seems that the Sabbath is at the forefront of their issue with Jesus, uh, how he practices the Sabbath, how he observes the Sabbath. And it, it continually comes up in, uh, in two uh, different occasions at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. We see the issue that the Pharisees have with Jesus relates to the Sabbath. In many ways, the problem for the Pharisees um, is their focus was on the, on the wrong thing. Last week we said that starting in chapter 2 uh, through the end of our passage that we'll look at today, chapter 3, verse 6, there's five different kind of conflicts that Jesus has with the Pharisees. Um, and, and they reveal a number of different uh, challenges uh, that, that he has and, and questions that, uh, that come up. And uh, all along the way, the, the Pharisees are, are looking at Jesus and trying to measure up Jesus to their rules and to their regulations. See, the Pharisees desired uh, to keep the law. And in order to keep the law, they put a fence around the law, extra rules around the law, so that if they broke their rules, at least they hadn't broken the law. But the problem was they forgot the fence was their rules, and they acted as if the fence was God's rules. And, and so they kept their rules and regulations so much at the center of their thinking that they were trying to measure Jesus up to those things that they totally missed that Jesus had come 
uh, to be the promised Messiah, that Jesus had come as the Son of God, uh, as, the, uh, as the Messiah. And in fact, in our passage today, we're going to see he is the groom and he is the Lord of the Sabbath. They were so focused on their, uh, on their uh, practice of fasting that they missed the one they were supposed to celebrate. And they were so focused on their regulations of the Sabbath, they missed the one who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, and so uh, today what we're going to do is to, to try uh, to not uh, follow the error of the Pharisees. We're going to try to see Jesus. Uh, we're going to try to understand that Jesus is the main point, not only of our passage, but he's the main, he's at the very heart of God's plan of redemption. And so uh, the first thing I want us to see is Jesus and fasting. In chapter uh, 2, verse 18, it says that some people came to Jesus and they are drawing a contrast between John's disciples and the Pharisees with Jesus and his disciples. Now, they come with the question, it doesn't tell us who these people are, presumably it's not John's disciples or the Pharisees, but some other people who had been watching what's going down. And there's some curiosity in their question, but there's also some judgment mixed in. Uh, John's disciples and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't. Uh, It looks like these guys are super devout, but your guys are just kind of walking around like gluttons, drinking and eating all the time. What's What's the deal? And, and so it says that they present this question, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, at this point, Jesus could have kind of opened up a lesson about fasting in the Old Testament. Number one, fasting in the Old Testament, it is there's a regular fast prescribed at the Day of Atonement. That's the, the primary fast that's prescribed, that's to be practiced by Israel in the Old Testament. We're later on told during the exile period um, and the post-exilic period uh, in Zechariah chapter 8 that there are four other fasts that Israel practiced uh, after the exile. And then later on in Esther 9 to commemorate God sparing uh, the people of Israel through the plan uh, that was, that's laid out there in the book of Esther uh, to, uh, to, to basically kill all the, all the Jews at the time in Persia. Uh, there is another fast that is, uh, that's kind of observed by, by Israel. So there's, there's not a ton of fasts that are prescribed for Israel. The practice of fasting was very common throughout the Old Testament. It was often reflective of a heart of repentance, a heart of uh, intercession, desiring God to work and, uh, and requesting of him to, uh, to work. And so um, it, it is, uh, it's not uncommon that the Pharisees were to, to practice fasting. In fact, pretty much fasting is a... Uh, is a common uh, practice throughout almost all religions. And in fact, it's now totally void of religion and now it's a health benefit, right? Like, uh, you know, uh, you can just intermittent fasting and, and, and I've done that and it has some benefit too. That's not what we're talking about today. But uh, there's all kinds of people that can discuss and talk about fasting. Um, and so it wasn't uncommon for the Pharisees and John's disciples to do this. In fact, we know that John was a, lived an aesthetic lifestyle and uh, was known for uh, the kind of strange things he wore and ate and sometimes didn't eat. And, and the Pharisees were told in Luke chapter 18, verse 12, that they fasted twice a week. Uh, from tradition, we're told they fasted on Monday and Thursday. And so Jesus could have corrected and, and said, listen, uh, there's only these few fasts that are prescribed and we haven't broken these things. He could have done that, but he doesn't because fasting isn't wrong. It's commendable. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will tell us, uh, he will state and give us instructions for when we do fast. It's not if you fast. He says, whenever you fast, 
do this. Don't be gloomy like the others and make it look as if you're fasting so that people will notice you. Instead, uh, make it so people don't notice you, but turn your focus to the Lord and do it in secret. And the God who sees you, the Father who sees you in secret will reward you is what Matthew chapter 6 says. So Jesus says, whenever you fast, because of the expectation that in the Christian life at various points, we would fast. Um, and, and so he, he could have kind of given a correction here, but instead he turns our focus to, to something else, to a wedding. He says in verse 19, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them. Can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. I don't know if you've been to a wedding recently, but a wedding isn't meant to be a somber occasion, right? It's meant to be a celebration. And so when you go to a wedding, uh, and if you've planned one or or been a part of helping plan one or you've paid for one, uh, you know that the food is an expensive part um, and it costs a lot of money. Uh, It doesn't just appear, right? Like there's no manna at weddings. Like you have to pay for that stuff. And uh, and if you do it at a venue, like their stuff, their, their ingredients, I guess, it costs them more money to get the ingredients. I don't know. Like, uh, it's even more money, you know? And so uh, it's, a, it's a celebration filled with food and rejoicing and with people you love. And Jesus here is making a statement. He's saying, and really two things concerning himself, he, he's showing us that we are to feast with Jesus during his first coming. He's, he's saying that Jesus, he's about himself, we can see that Jesus is the promised one whom John the Baptist proclaimed. And I'm, I'm pulling here from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, but, but it's so striking that I can't help but think that, uh, that Jesus is, is maybe speaking a little bit to John's disciples here. Uh, presumably, these disciples continued to kind of uh, follow John, even though John had been arrested. Presumably, they are fasting and maybe even seeking John's release. From, from prison under Herod. Um, and, and so uh, the whole point wasn't to become John's disciples, right? Like if you remember, John is like, it's not me, it's Jesus. Like, don't follow me, follow Jesus. Like that was the whole point. And so I can't help but think that Jesus is speaking to them here. And he says, I'm the one that John proclaimed. I'm the groom. So rejoice at my arrival like the groomsmen. Because John said this in John chapter 3, verses 28 through 30. He said, I'm not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friends who stand by and listen for him rejoice greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John said, I'm the groomsman. The groom has arrived, and when the groom arrives, everyone rejoices. And so he's saying here, the, the kingdom of God, there's, there's celebration and there's rejoicing in the king. Jesus is saying, you've got your times mixed up. Because I'm here, because I have arrived, fulfilling the, the kingdom of God, as we've looked at in the previous chapters, he says, now is a time of celebration and rejoicing in the presence of the king. And this is actually foretold in Isaiah chapter 26, verses 6 through 10. If you look there, it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat. I can't help but think maybe it's like a Brazilian steakhouse when this feast happens. A feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat. Twice he says it. It's going to be there. Fine vintage wine. On this mountain he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over the peoples, the sheep covering the nation. He will destroy death forever. The Lord will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace. He says, on that day, the people will say, look, 
This is our God. We have waited for him. He has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That's the picture of salvation in the prophet Isaiah. Jesus is saying, my arrival has brought about this feast. So when the king is present, it's not a time for fasting. It's a time for feasting. And he goes on to say that not only uh, is this a time for, for celebrating because the groom is present, but he goes on to say the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them and they will fast on that day. And he gives this image. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or otherwise the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and the worst hair is made and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, the new wine's put into the fresh wineskins. I mean, duh, everybody knows that, right? Um, I read that the first time. I was like, I'm not sure I understand what's happening here, you know? Um, But he's saying when you put uh, a new cloth on old cloth, that new cloth is going to shrink and pull away from the old cloth and make the hole even worse. And then he says, you don't put new wine in old wineskin because it becomes brittle and the new wine, as it ferments further and expands, it will break the uh, binding on the old wineskin and the wine will spill out everywhere. And so instead you put the new wine into the new Uh, into the fresh wineskins. He's saying that the old isn't consistent with the new. He's saying his arrival has brought about uh, this transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. Uh, Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant and brought about the new covenant with its promised blessings. He's saying to the Pharisees, you're, you're looking back at the old covenant, trying to dot your I's and cross your T's and go even above and beyond uh, to protecting yourself to obey the law so that the Messiah would come. And I'm telling you that the Messiah has come. The new has arrived. The old isn't consistent with the new. I love one commentator said, Jesus is the new patch and the new wine. He's not an attachment or an addition or an appendage to the status quo. He cannot be integrated into or contained by pre-existing structures, even of Judaism, the Torah, and the synagogue. Jesus is moving us from the age of promise to the age of fulfillment. The time has come. The kingdom is at hand. The the king has arrived, Jesus declares. So we have to tune our hearts and and bend our knee to Jesus as the king and to his teaching. And so we know that to, to come into the kingdom... We, we cannot try to, to measure up uh, to the practices of the Old Covenant. That was not what God intended in the Old Covenant. It was always by grace, and then we kept the, the commands to demonstrate that we were His people. But the Pharisees uh, get this reversed, and it's as if they think if we keep the standards of the Old Covenant, then the Messiah will come, then the new will come. Jesus is saying that's not how it works. The new has come through my arrival. The kingdom is, is now arrived. And yet, we get this dynamic that the kingdom isn't fully here yet. And so the kingdom has arrived in Jesus and the kingdom hasn't come in its fullness yet. But now we know how the kingdom operates. We know that the kingdom operates by repentance and faith. We know that the kingdom operates not by trying to keep the, the old covenant standards, but by receiving the king who has come to fulfill the new covenant. Jesus has kept the standards of the Old Covenant perfectly on our behalf, and He is the sacrifice once and for all for our sins according to the the command of the Old Covenant that there would be a sacrifice for sins. Jesus is the one who takes away our sin and, and provides forgiveness of sin. Jesus is the one who brings about the promised New Covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. 
And so we see here that Jesus is saying that, that He is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant and has brought about the New Covenant. And so the kingdom is now marked by celebration and rejoicing. And yet, He gives us this hint that though it is marked by celebration and rejoicing in His coming, there is this sense in which His coming isn't permanent at this point. Did you notice at the beginning of verse 20 what it said? If you look at verse 20, it says, but the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. So the groom has come, but the time is coming when the groom will be taken away. And so there's this, there's this time that's marked by longing and dependence for his return. And so we have feasting in his presence at his first coming, but then we have fasting as we wait for his second coming. So Jesus, Jesus here isn't dismissing fasting from the Christian life. He's actually defining what fasting is. Fasting isn't, a, uh, isn't just a leftover of the old covenant, but it's filled with new meaning and new significance because of Jesus' first coming and anticipation of His second coming. And so what He's saying is the time is going to come when I'm going to be taken away. And this isn't a reference to uh, just to His like betrayal and then like once He was crucified, the, the few days there in between those things. He's saying that that day is the day upon from which Jesus ascended until the day he returns. It's a really long day. Uh, we're all waiting uh, for that day uh, to, to come to, to an end when Jesus will return. And he's saying from, from the time of Jesus' departure, from his, uh, the, the whole thing encompassing his death, resurrection, and ascension until he returns, that is a time that's marked by fasting. And in the kingdom of God... Um, <clears throat> We, we know that Jesus reigns, and if he reigns in our life, then we now have access to the, to the joy, to the feast that is knowing him. Knowing him is to be marked by a sense of celebration and joy. And this is where the, the already not yet of the kingdom, we have tasted the joy of knowing Jesus, the king. And yet, if all of us are honest, we know that we haven't gotten the fullness of that taste yet. Um, we've had a little bit and it's good and we long for more and, and yet we know that there's something that's waiting for us. There is this second coming, this return that is to, uh, is to bring about it in its fullness. And so I think there's a sense here in which we read this and we go, man, wouldn't it have been awesome to be Jesus' disciples? They got to literally feast in his presence. They, they got to be with the Messiah himself and walk with him and hear him and, and rejoice with him and literally eat with him and, uh, and hear his teaching and understand his teaching, though it certainly took them some time. <laughs> so we can be encouraged ourselves as it takes us some time to figure it out sometimes. But they literally got to feast with him, and yet we don't. We're, we're in that day. We're in the between of his first coming and his second coming. And yet when we come to know Christ, we, we come to experience the joy of the Lord. We come to know what it means to, to enjoy God and to experience his joy. And so I asked myself as I read this, just as I ask you, are you experiencing the joy of the Lord? Are you experiencing what it means to have joy in the Lord today? In light of Jesus' first coming and all that he's accomplished through his death and his resurrection, through faith in him, do you have joy in him? And I think that question is important because our joy is not dependent on our circumstances. Our joy is dependent on a person, and that person is Jesus. 
and his first coming, what he accomplished is the foundation of our joy. So if our joy isn't dependent on our circumstances, but is instead determined by the reign of God and Jesus is reigning, then that means we can have joy today, no matter what our circumstances are. Now, I know that that may be um, easier said than done, but if Jesus is reigning in our lives, in our heart, that, mean he's, that means he's reigning over our circumstances. When your day and your week or your weekend don't go as planned. When work doesn't go as planned. When family doesn't go as planned. When life runs off the rails. In our joys and our successes, God is reigning. And if we have Christ, then we have what Psalm 1611 says, that in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. And so if we have fullness of joy in Christ, the thing is, that doesn't change. The source of our joy always remains the same. But the thing is, sometimes we get kind of off track and distracted from where the source of the joy is. We, we kind of lose sight of the source of the joy because of our challenges, because of our circumstances, because of our suffering. And what we need, sometimes overwhelmed by our circumstances or losing sight of our joy, is to return to Christ. And I think in many ways, this is what fasting functions as. It functions as an expression of our dependence and our delight in God, regardless of our circumstances, and as we wait for his second coming. It it is an expression of our hearts to say, God, we need you. We desire you. We want you. We want our joy to be full in you. So we do without to set our minds and our hearts on you. In many ways, as you think about fasting, it's expressing our longing to be fully in the presence of God and for his kingdom to come in its fullness. You could say it this way. It's the present abstinence from food or something else, perhaps TV, social media, some other thing that, uh, that takes up time or focus for you. It's the present abstinence of those things in light of our future feast that will be ours. Or what we're doing without because we're longing for what's to be ours. There's a great book by John Piper called A Hunger for God as he talks about Christian fasting. And on this passage, as he reflects on it, thinking about how we've tasted God's grace uh, through faith in Christ, and yet we await the fullness of that to come in the future. He says, we've tasted the powers of the age to come, and our fasting is not because we are hungry for something we have not experienced, but because the new wine of Christ's presence is so real and so satisfying. We must have all that it is possible to have. The newness of our fasting is this. Its intensity comes not because we've never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, but because we've tasted it so wonderfully by His Spirit that we cannot be satisfied until the consummation of joy arrives. We're saying that God in fasting, God, I want you this much, Piper says. We're saying in fasting, God, I long for you. My my heart is dry and weary, but I know there's a feast coming for me. So help, help that reality of what's to come be my present experience renew my joy god we're interceding for god to work in our our circumstances in the lives of people around us in our church in the world as the gospel advances we're pleading for god to work and to move so that what what will come in the future becomes uh even in part a reality now so as christians we fast because of what what christ accomplished through his first coming and We fast because we're awaiting His second coming. 
We, we fast because we know what, what is to be ours. Because Christ came. He died. He rose from the dead. He's coming again. And so we're longing for what's to be ours. And so uh, some takeaways for us as we think about fasting here in this passage. One, we should fast. I don't know if you've practiced fasting in some form, whether it be doing without food or doing without something else or a juice fast or some other type of fast. Uh, in our equipped class on Christian formation, we talked about fasting from the book Habits of Grace. It recommends a, a number of different resources about ways to begin small and intentionally even including others, doing things with others. But the expectation is that as Christians, we would fast. So we should fast. And when we fast, according to the Sermon on the Mount, we shouldn't draw attention to ourselves as we fast. It's not about people knowing that we're fasting. Uh, instead, what we should do is turn our focus from ourselves and from whatever occupies our time, whether it be our food or some other thing, and use that time to turn our focus to God and to his work. Now, as you look at the Old Testament, there are a number of ways and reasons that people fasted. And I mentioned some of them. Repentance, expressing dependence on God, interceding, asking for God to protect, for God to deliver, asking for, for God to minister to the needs of others, a number of different reasons. I want to encourage you in something that I think is striking to me in the New Testament. As you look at the early church and you look at when they fasted, they often fasted concerning the mission and the health of the church. It was in Acts 13 at Antioch as the gospel went out from Antioch to the nations and they sent out Paul and Barnabas that they were fasting and praying. And it's in Acts 14 when they install elders in all the churches that Paul and Barnabas had planted that they committed those elders uh, to the Lord and, and to lead those churches with fasting and praying. And I thought, man, what an encouragement and a challenge for us. Yes, we fast longing for God to work in our lives, but do we also fast longing for God to work in his church and to advance his gospel? We should fast. We shouldn't focus on ourselves. And instead, we should turn our focus towards God and to his work in our fasting. So Jesus gives us in many ways a word about fasting, but also corrects the, the Pharisees and, and, and the, the, the people asking this question to say, realize the groom has come. The, the time of fulfillment has arrived. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant and has brought about the new covenant. Rejoice in the presence of the king but also long for the king to return. The day is coming, and now as we apply it to our lives, the day is here in which we long for the king to come. The second thing I want us to see is Jesus and the Sabbath. Starting in verse 23, we see that the Sabbath is at the forefront now. We've already seen that the Sabbath has been an issue in Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, but here it comes to the forefront in two different situations. One is in verses 23 through 27, Jesus' disciples are plucking grain uh, as they are going about their way uh, on the Sabbath. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Jesus heals a man with a deformed or withered hand on the Sabbath. Now, verse 24 tells us that Jesus' disciples were walking alongside a field. They saw some wheat uh, and they plucked the wheat and they ate some wheat. Um, is uh, the description of what unfolds uh, in verses 23 through 24. And apparently the Pharisees either are like hiding in the wheat field uh, or have people watching, right? That the Jesus and his disciples because they're watching this all go down. And, and they're like, hey, we noticed you were in the field the other day and uh, your disciples, they took a little bit of wheat from Joe's field, you know, uh, and they ate some, you know, like a handful. Like we saw it with our own eyes, you know. Um, and, and so they... They are bringing this issue up to kind of confront Jesus, try to catch him. 
And, and again, in this situation, Jesus could have said, number one, it's actually allowed in the Old Testament to, to glean from a field. It was part of the way in which God provided for those who didn't have much, that they could glean from a field as they went by. And it gives the example uh, in the law in Exodus that you can glean from the field that his disciples have done here, um, and, and that is permissible uh, and isn't forbidden. And, and furthermore, uh, the, the idea that what they're doing on the Sabbath, the thing that they state in verse 24, is they say, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Why are you breaking the command to work on the Sabbath? Now, the, the thing behind that is they have, because God said you shall not do any work on the Sabbath, and there are a few different examples in the Old Testament of what work might entail on the Sabbath, but there are a number of things that it doesn't say. So the Pharisees are like, well, we can't have... Uh, any gap in our understanding. So we got to fill in everything um, that is not allowed on the Sabbath. And one of the things that's not allowed on the Sabbath is harvesting your field. And so they put uh, the plucking of some grain uh, to eat on the way in the category of harvesting. You know, And what we're talking about is the disciples are like, Walking down the field, I think this is kind of how it goes, you know. And they grab some wheat, you know. Maybe they got to, you know, mess with it in their hand or whatever to to eat some wheat. Um, I mean, the, like the equivalent is like you would like enjoy some honey from a honeysickle, you know, as you're riding your bike along the road, you know. Like those are memories from my childhood, and and so they're trying to say that Jesus and his disciples have broken the law, and Jesus could have corrected them in their error, what they were thinking. Instead, he does something different. He's going to, to make a point regarding uh, the fault in the Pharisees' thinking about how they, uh, how they think about keeping the law will bring about God's purposes. Uh, and he's ultimately going to point to his authority over the Sabbath um, and, and say that, that he is the one who determines the meaning of the law, not the Pharisees. So he points to the story of David. And uh, he says, Have you never read what David and those who are with him did when he was in need and hungry and how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone except the priest, and also gave some to his companions. He tells this story, and it's somewhat of an interesting story, and usually, uh, as, as I read this, a number of commentators say that what Jesus is doing here is demonstrating that though David technically broke the law because he was in need, uh, that kind of the, the spirit of the law, if you will, uh, wasn't, wasn't violated. And, uh, and furthermore, because of David's position as the anointed king, even though he was running from Saul, who was technically the king at the time, uh, that, uh, that, that, was, that was permitted. And so one commentator says that David's authority was sufficient to obtain priestly approval for an action that was illegal, that Jesus could declare an action deemed illegal by the Pharisees to be permissible since his authority exceeds that of David. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But as I look at 1 Samuel 21, which is the story of David fleeing Saul, it also raises this question because um, this is one of those textual situations in, in the Bible that uh, raises the question of whether or not it's trustworthy to people. Because it says that uh, it was during the time of Abiathar that uh, David took the showbread. But it wasn't during the time of Abiathar. It was during the time of Ahimelech. Uh, who was Abiathar's father, uh, that David went into uh, to the tabernacle to take uh, the, the showbread. And, and so 
Uh, it could be translated that it was generally during the time of Abiathar because Abiathar would end up ruling uh, longer and be a much more significant priestly f- figure during David's reign um, and obviously so closely connected. In fact, it's in chapter 2. Abiathar is the only surviving uh, son of Ahimelech after Saul kills all the priests uh, and uh, Abiathar is the only one that survives. It could be that, but I think Jesus is doing something else. I think Jesus is saying... Uh, he, in this situation, um, in 1 Samuel 21, David actually is running from Saul. He, he kind of coordinates with Jonathan and finds out that Saul wants to kill him. And he's running from Saul. He gets to Ahimelech, and Ahimelech's scared, and David's by himself. And he says to Ahimelech, I'm on an urgent mission. Saul has sent me on an urgent mission. I need some food. Can you give me uh, five loaves of uh, bread or whatever you can uh, to, feed, to feed my men? Abithar's terrified, or Ahimelech's terrified at this, but he's like, well, uh, we have some bread. It's the Sabbath. We're about to take the bread out. You know, that's when they replaced the 12 loaves that were there in the tabernacle. They replaced those 12 loaves every Sabbath, and the, the priest would be the ones who ate them. Um, and he says, we can give you some of those, but um, the priests have to be ceremonial clean. They can't have had any relationship or intimacy with a, a woman. They must be ceremonially clean to have uh, the bread. And David's like, well, of course we're ceremonial clean. We're going into war, so none of the men have been intimate. Uh, so we're all, we're all good to go, basically, is what he says. And then he's like, oh, and uh, by the way, do you have, like, you know, a sword or something? And so he takes Goliath's sword um, from Ahimelech and takes it with him. Uh, and it's somewhat of a bizarre passage because then David goes to Gath, um, and he gets concerned that they're going to uh, arrest him. Um, and, and instead he acts crazy. Uh, and the, the king, you know, the Philistines are like, this dude's crazy. Let's get him out of here. And so he runs further. And then uh, Saul finds out that Ahimelech helped David. And Saul's mad. And even though Ahimelech thought that David was on a mission for Saul, because that's what David said, um, and, and, and Ahimelech says to Saul, listen, I, I had no idea. I thought he was helping you. And Saul says, that's it. Kill Ahimelech and his whole family and kill the entire, uh, basically wipe out the entire city of Nob. Children, animals, the whole thing. Take it all out. And so the city of Nob is destroyed and Ahimelech and all of his family dies except Abiathar. Abiathar escapes to David and he comes and tells David what happened. And David knows that what he cost Ahimelech his life because he lied to him and because he has done these things and and Ahimelech would, would end up becoming a priest under David's reign once David becomes king. And then later on, Abiathar would betray David and appoint Adonijah as king rather than Solomon. Uh, and, and Abiathar, even though he deserved death for his betrayal, is showed mercy uh, by, uh, by Solomon, but is ultimately removed from being a priest. So you want to know the dysfunction of the anointed one and the priestly order in the Old Testament. The story of Abiathar is a great example And I think what Jesus does here is show, he says to the Pharisees, you're looking, David is their hero, one of their heroes, and yet David is a lawbreaker. Their whole foundation is that the kingdom will come when a Davidic-like figure comes and keeps the law perfectly, defeats the Romans, and establishes God's kingdom. He says you've got it all wrong. Even the very hero that you look to is a lawbreaker. And the, the, the extra-biblical rules and visions that you've set up for perfect obedience is a pipe dream. God didn't choose David because he was a perfect keeper of the law. God chose David because he was merciful and gracious. It's the same reason that God chooses any of us. 
And, and Jesus' point is your whole foundation's off. It's not in uh, them keeping their rituals and their requirements that the kingdom will come, but the kingdom comes when they recognize the king and they submit to him. They, they see that the kingdom comes as an act of mercy and as an act of grace. And so Jesus is saying that, that their foundation is wrong, and he goes on to say the Sabbath wasn't made for man. Um, it says the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, which is a reference to himself, uh, is the Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying here that the Sabbath was made for man. It's meant to be a blessing and a refreshment to man. And that Jesus himself is the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who has authority over the Sabbath. Jesus, unlike David, never broke the law. Jesus kept it perfectly and is the perfect representative and the one uh, who rescues us from our sin and establishes God's kingdom. So here again, Jesus is asserting his authority and exposing the misguided pursuit of the Pharisees by kind of pointing to, uh, to the story of David and the story of Abiathar. And rather than it being a mistake that he cites Abiathar, uh, he's, he's doing it to make a point, uh, to demonstrate David's breaking of the law and, and the consequences of it. And so uh, what we end up having here is, is, is Jesus basically saying, if you think that you can be a servant uh, of the Sabbath, you're misguided. It's not, it's not that we were meant to be servants of the Sabbath, but we were meant to be servants of the Lord of the Sabbath. And when you're servants of the Lord of the Sabbath, that's when you find the true rest that the Sabbath was intended to provide. You don't find rest by becoming servants of the Sabbath and, and by seeking to, uh, to, to measure up in obedience to God. We, become, we experience the rest the Sabbath was intended by trusting in Jesus. And he presses, he presses this question, I think, to the Pharisees, this point to the Pharisees. And it's kind of an eye-opening question because it's, it's ultimately, do we see who Jesus is and do we see our need for Jesus? It's good news because Jesus came for sinners and lawbreakers, even like David, even like the Pharisees, if they would have eyes to see their need and to see Jesus as the giver of grace and mercy. In Matthew 3, 1 through 6, um, I'm just going to cover this quickly because our time is short. I'm going to ask Rebecca and Trey to go ahead and come up. Uh, We have this final situation in verses 1 through 6 on the Sabbath where Jesus goes into the Sabbath and the, the Pharisees once more are watching him. They're just wanting to see him break the Sabbath if he would do anything on the Sabbath. It, maybe it was almost like they knew the man with the shriveled hand would be there. They wanted to see what Jesus would do. And so they're all there watching, seeing what's going to take place. Even though healing on the Sabbath was never forbidden, that's what they were watching for. And Jesus makes the point. He tells the man with the withered hand, he says, stand before us. And then he asks this question. He says, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? You see, the Pharisees were great at focusing on purity and obedience to the law. In fact, Matthew 23, Jesus would say, Woe to the scribes and Pharisees, they're hypocrites, for they tithe mint and dill and cumin, but they neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. They ought to have done the other things without neglecting these other things. Isaiah 58 speaks of a fast in which uh, God's people would consider the poor. They would consider the needy among them. They wouldn't fast uh, and then go about their business neglecting the very people that God had put around them in need. 
And he's pointing all of that out, though we don't have time to read it. I think what Jesus is doing is saying to them, he says, is, is the Sabbath not meant in order to restore the goodness of God's creation? Is the Sabbath not meant to be good and to do good and to, to heal? Isn't healing on the Sabbath the very heart of what Sabbath rest is all about? And it says that they were silent because they knew if they answered in the affirmative that they would, they would, they would make his point that it, was, it wasn't unlawful for him to heal on the Sabbath. And if they didn't, uh, then, uh, then others would be angry. So they were there, there they were silent. And Jesus is angry. Angry because they've distorted a right understanding of the Sabbath. Angry because they've distorted an understanding of the law. And grieved because he came that they might see who they are, their need for him and his provision for them. And it says, uh, being grieved by this, their hardness of hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand and he restored it. And we see the bankruptcy of the Pharisees, their spiritual bankruptcy, and that they go to the Herodians, who would have been their enemy, who was in cahoots with Rome. Um, and they go to the Herodians and they conspire together for how they can kill Jesus. See, Mark 3, 1 through 6 shows us in many ways the mercy of Jesus. Mark 2, 23 through 28 kind of shows us the authority of Jesus. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Here we see the Lord of the Sabbath is also merciful on the Sabbath. He's showing us that the one who has all authority is also the one who chooses to show mercy. The one who has all authority chooses to show mercy. But he also shows us that the one who humbles themselves before Jesus receives mercy. But then perhaps the most poignant application to us is the very thing that the Pharisees did. If it's the humble who receive mercy from Jesus, the warning for us is to not harden our heart to Jesus. See, that's the whole point of all of these interactions with the Pharisees. Time after time, Jesus showed them his authority. Authority to forgive sins. Authority to, uh, to, to call sinners to himself. Authority to, to understand the law and to, to show us how the kingdom comes. That he's the Lord of the Sabbath. All of these things, time and time again. And rather than the Pharisees seeing and saying, we see who Jesus is. We see our need for Jesus. Instead, time and time again, they harden their heart so much to the point that they go to conspire to kill him. So whether, you're, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not today, my question remains the same as we conclude. Have you hardened your heart to Jesus? Do you hear or see any of the things that Jesus d- does in the scriptures and go, eh, it's not that significant, it's not that important? Jesus is challenging us not to harden our heart to him today. And what good, what good news he offers us that would, that would melt our hearts so that we might come to him in humility and repentance and dis- expressing our need. He shows us that he is the source of mercy. He's the fount of satisfaction. He's the, the groom with whom we celebrate. He's the restorer of our brokenness, not just of our withered hands, but of our withered hearts. He's the one who gives mercy. He's the one who gives rest. And the invitation is to come to him to not harden our heart, to believe in Him, to find satisfaction in Him, and to rest in Him. Have you come to Him? Are you resting in Him? Is your satisfaction in Him? Or in some way, shape, or form, is there just a little bit that's hardening your heart towards Him? I pray that you'll have have the, the courage 
to be honest about what's true in your own heart today. Like Jesus, he could read the hearts of the Pharisees in the room. I can't read yours. But Jesus does. Don't harden your heart one, one second longer. Come to him in faith and repentance or return to him in renewed faith and repentance that you might receive mercy, find rest and satisfaction in him. Let's pray.